Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to turn to Proverbs chapter 15. I told you Thursday night <coughs> that <coughs> uh, today was going to be a day when you get a, a, a big chunk of something that you really need to understand about the Bible. You know, it, it goes like that sometime. I mean, every sermon, you know, you get principles and things that you want to get down. But every time, once in a while you come to a place in the Bible where, you know, it's such a gold mine that uh, you just have to take the time to really accomplish uh, what you need to accomplish. My goal for all of you, obviously, is to learn the Bible uh, that it works for you. That the number one thing in your life and the number one thing that you know more about than anything else in life will be the Bible. Now, I, I, I understand that that will not happen with a lot of people, but that's still my goal. Uh, my job is simply to make the Bible as easy as I can for you, make it as exciting as I can for you, and make it as real as I can for you. And hopefully some of you, many of you, not all of you, but many of you, will grasp that challenge, and you too will want the Word of God on that on that level. So, uh, you know, it's an exciting time around here when it comes to the Bible and all the things that we do. And um, and uh, I told you that uh, you're going to have the ability today to get a real piece of, of the puzzle when it comes to the Word of God. When it comes to you and me as God's creation, what God has done, the way He has done it, and why it's so important for us to understand that. I'm going to make it real simple today. Basically, um, this message is going to be built around three words that are in our text today uh, that, I, that I want to talk about. And uh, these three words will be uh, one of the three concepts that will help us unlock this that we need to understand. Now, I'm going to begin reading here at, at uh, Proverbs chapter 15, just verses 10 and 12, and then we'll, we'll go from there. It says in verse 10, Correction is grievous. Unto him that forsaketh the way. And he that hateth reproof shall die. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men. A scorner loveth not the one that reproveth him. Neither will he go unto the wise. Now that's a great passage. And as I said, I want to unlock it by just looking at three key words as it will Give us what we need today. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord and pray. Nate, would you stand up and ask God blessing on their offering for our, on the message today? Dear Heavenly Father, I'd like to thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to receive these words that you've given Bob to give us. Lord, and help us go out in our daily lives and, and use it to further your ministry and, and do things that are glorifying to you. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Now, three key concepts here I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about the heart of man. Second of all, I want to talk about the way of man. And then thirdly, I want to talk about the correction of man. Those are three key aspects to our Christian life and found in this verse here, these verses as you read him. So I want to begin by um, kind of breaking it down and showing you how it applies in the Word of God to you and to me. One of the things you're going to have to do when it comes to the Bible at some point in time, you're going to have to learn how the Bible and where the Bible defines all the key issues. Now, the Bible defines every issue, but 
starting out, you want to get the key ones. You'll notice that when I teach you the Bible on Thursday night or when you come over one-on-one or on Sunday morning, when I get to a definitive passage, I will tell you right then that this is a definitive passage. If you're smart, you're going to mark that in your Bible right while we're going there. It takes no time to do that at all. That gives you a key to understanding and unlocking many things in the Bible. And the first word that I want to look at and that we have to understand is the aspect of man's heart. And I'm going to give you a number of definitive passages today that you'll want to, you'll want to get down. And, you know, we see the heart of man a lot in the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you in chapter 14, verse 30, about a sound heart. And we talked about the heart, but I was waiting till I got to here to really kind of lay it out. We talked about back then on that day a couple of weeks ago, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, that you and I as God's people are to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. But, you know, when we use things like that and we talk about that, the real question comes up, and I've been asked this many times over the years, what is the heart? What really is it? What is it, what does it really mean when it says that we have a heart and should have a heart for God or love God with all of your heart? If you would look inside your body today, where do you find the heart that the Bible's talking about? It certainly isn't this physical one that pumps the blood through your bodies. But there's a spiritual heart inside of man. And with that spiritual heart, and this is one of the things we want to define today. That spiritual heart gives you the ability to choose to either love God, love your children, love your husband, love your wife, love things out there, people out there. Certainly it isn't this heart that you have, as I said, beating the blood through your body. I know the life of the flesh is in the blood and the heart pumps that through your body. We use the word heart. To illustrate uh, what's central to us. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The heart of the matter. We talk about, I love you with all of my heart. Something that is key and central. But the heart that's inside of you, that you love with, that you hate with, that you feel with. What is it? Now we want to break it down for you today. And I want you to be able to understand it. So you want to get your notes as we come through here. Now, I want to go back and I want to explain a process to you, which I think is vital. And most of God's people have no clue about what I'm about to lay out for them. So it's just where to get the piece of the puzzle here. When God made man, and God created man, man is not a product of evolution. Man didn't start out, you know, with a tadpole and then a monkey and a banyan tree and then a doctor with a PhD. It didn't come that way. God created man. And when he created man, he created man with the appearance of age. 33 years of age. But when he made man, he made man in a trinity form. We'll call it a trichotomy. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, that God made man in his image and his likeness. So, Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says that God made man out of the dust of the ground. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's the three parts of man. And by the way, Genesis 2-7 is the definitive verse on your trichotomy body in the Bible. And when you define them out of that verse, it says, And God made man out of the dust of the ground. That's your physical body. 
breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the spirit of man. And then the Bible says that man became a living soul. Three parts to you if you're saved. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And within that trichotomy, there lies a heart. A central part of man. A heart that you choose to give your love to God. Give your love to your wife. Give your love to your husband. Give your life to your, your animals. Give your, give your love to, to your children. And all of the things that we talk about out there. Each one of these parts has its own identity. And its own function. And I want to explain them to you today. I want you to understand each part of this. So we're going to take it slow, we're going to take it fundamentally, and when you leave here today, if you're paying attention, you will formally understand the function of your body, your soul, and your spirit, that you'll never get confused on it again, and you'll understand where your heart is. And, and you know, and people, God's people who, who don't know the Bible, they'll use the terms like, What's your mind? Or, you know, speaking your mind, or the mind of man, or the heart of man. <clears throat> They'll use it based on the information that they've got or what they think it really is. And in almost every case without exception, because they did not use the Bible to define it, they come up with some ideas that are not right. And it becomes very confusing because without a Bible, without the Word of God, and, and, and for me, <clears throat> If the Bible isn't the book that defines everything for us in life, then let me just tell you something. I'm wasting my time this morning, and you have wasted your time this morning. In this world of uncertainty, in this world of the most screwed up concepts you could ever find in your life, there has to be something that is solid, something that is absolute, something that you and I can go to, that in a world of controversy and upside down values and principles, there's still somewhere we can go to get the absolute truth on something. And for me, it's the Word of God. So let's see how each part is defined from the Bible, and then we'll look at how it fits into our three key words today, and then fits into our text. Now, first of all, The Bible says God made man out of the dust of the ground. Now that will be your body. You're sitting here today in what God made out of the dust of the ground, your flesh, your body. In fact, you remember that uh, when God made uh, uh, Adam, he says he made him out of the dust of the ground. I don't know if you know this or not, but the same 14 elements that are in the dirt, any dirt you pick up anywhere, are the same 14 elements that are in your body. Remember the time that Jesus had a blind man, and he was blind, and God wanted to heal him? He reached down, and he got some dirt, and he spit into it and made clay, made that guy an eye, because of the fact that he came from the dirt. Adam. The name Adam means red-brown, like the dirt. We have a familiar expression, don't hear it much anymore, but when somebody was in trouble, or somebody did something wrong, he'd simply say, my name is Mud. (laughs) Dirt. Now the Bible teaches that this is what changed the day that Adam fell. Adam lost the image of God. Adam lost the likeness of God. And now Adam begins to produce a chain of children and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren right down through the genealogies that come to you and to me. Because every one of us here today come from Adam, originally. 
And once he fell, he produced human beings in his own likeness, in his own image, which was sinful flesh. And this flesh of yours and mine is sinful, and it's a source of all our problems. I want you to understand, and I, I, I think you probably understand it or believe this. I'm not sure you practice it or understand it. But there is, with your flesh, there's no negotiating with your flesh. The idea, well, I'll do a little bit because I know when to stop is the most foolish thing anybody ever said. The idea that you can play with your flesh, give it this, give it that, and then pull back and say, oh, enough's enough, you're out of your mind. There is no negotiating with your flesh. There's no halfway measures with your flesh. There's no compromise with your flesh. Your flesh is sinful. And it wants total control of your life away from God and the things of God. And will always try out to try to destroy you. The Bible says that our great battles are up against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 10 says that we as Christians are not to walk after the flesh. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 16 it talks about the lust of the flesh. Now there's two phrases in the Bible that you want to get down and they'll, they'll define some things. First of all, when the Bible says that we walk after the flesh, that'll be a Christian. The Bible will talk about the fact that there are people, like in Romans chapter 7 verse 5, who are in the flesh. That's an unsaved person. You want to remember that. A saved person can never be in the flesh. That's very important. And I know some people say, well, what's the big deal? It's all about word. No, it's about doctrine. A saved person can never be in the flesh because of the fact, and I'll explain it in a moment, that you've been saved. But what a Christian can do is not be in the flesh. That's an unsaved man, but a Christian can walk after the flesh. That's the big difference. Those are two basic fundamental doctrines in the Bible that sooner or later you're going to have to learn. Now the definitive passage on the flesh, the body, will be Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Romans being the greatest book in the Bible on doctrine for you and for me as a New Testament Christian, he explains the problems that we have with the flesh and lays it out very clearly. He says in Romans chapter 7 verse 14, this is Paul speaking now about his own flesh. Here's what he says. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. You know what? That's the greatest verse right there that explains Bob Alexander. And if you're honest this morning, it's the greatest verse in the Bible that explains you. Amen. Raise your hand up high. I want everybody to see. This is her right here. She's always so agreeable. The moon's made out of blue cheese. Amen. Amen. She's with me. That's the greatest verse that explains us right there. It is. The things that I, I, I don't want to do are the things that I do. And the things that I know I, I, I should do, I don't do. He says in verse 16, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. 
Now here's what he says. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. You see, Paul was a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you have a new nature after you got saved, and you have an old nature after you got saved. This is why you cannot, as a Christian, walk in, uh, walk, be in the flesh anymore. You can't walk in the flesh, but you can walk after the flesh. Because the new nature is God's. It's perfect. It's everything that God wants. It's the old, and that's what he's saying here. He says, I know that it's no more than I do it, but sin dwelleth in me. And for you and for me that are saved, sin dwells in our flesh. He says in verse 18, for I know that in me, that is my flesh. See how easy it is? Dwelleth no good thing. Now there's a lot of God's people today that think there's some good in their flesh. There's no good in your flesh. And you can't play with it. You can't compromise with it. There's only one thing you can do with your flesh. That's crucify it. Eradicate it. He says, for I know that in me that is my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find out. You know what he's saying? He says, hey, I know that inside me dwelleth no good thing in my flesh. I want to do what's right. But there's a constant battle of how to do that. For the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more than I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, there's your spiritual warfare right there. There's what we're up against. If you're saved this morning. If you're unsaved, it really doesn't matter one way or the other. You're going to wind up in a lake of fire, so you might as well enjoy it. But if you are saved this morning, there is a war inside of you between our old nature, the flesh, and our new nature, our soul, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Verse 15 says, the things that I, I, I shouldn't do, I do. And the things that I don't do are the things that I, uh, I want to do, I can't do. And how do I perform that? And he says in verse 20, the whole problem is sin dwelling in you. That's your flesh. So now you understand what your flesh is. All right, let's look at the second aspect. Let's talk about your soul. Genesis 2, 7 says, man became a living soul. Now, your soul is the eternal part of you that only a human being has. And there's a reason for that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 21 will tell us that our furry little critters, the animals that we most muchly love, they have a body, they have flesh, and they have a spirit. But they have no souls. The soul of man after salvation is the place where God lives inside you. Through the Spirit of God. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What know you not? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Man's soul will be the complete spiritual body within your physical body. You go to Luke chapter 16, and you'll find that there's a rich man and Lazarus. And the Bible says about the rich man that he died and he was buried. But then it goes on to say that in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He sees Lazarus comfort and he says to Lazarus, Hey, look, go dip the tip of your finger in water and put it on my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. And then he says, I got five brothers. 
Go send somebody to them, lest they come also to this place of condemnation. Now there's his soul. His soul had eyes. His soul had a tongue. His soul could remember. His soul could feel pain. But his body was in the grave. You have inside of you this morning a spiritual body that is just like your physical body in every shape, way, and form. But it's the spiritual part of you that when you get shaved, God takes up residency in and separates that soul from your flesh. That the two can never get back together again. And then God lives inside your soul. Sealed, the Bible says, under the day of redemption. Nothing can get in, nothing can get out. Somebody says, well, I can believe you can lose your salvation. That's because you don't know your Bible. You have no idea that you've been sealed. Nothing can get in your soul, nothing can get out of your soul. The Holy Spirit of God comes in and zips you like a Ziploc bag and he stays there. The soul of man is the place where God lives. Man's soul will be complete a complete spiritual body within your physical body. Hey, I've had people that I've known over years that had a leg amputated. And years later, they would think that their leg, where it was gone, itched. Or they feel like they could feel it. But it was clearly gone. And they never understood the fact that inside your physical body is a spiritual body. And even though your physical leg was cut off, there's a spiritual leg there that nobody can ever cut off. It's incredible. In in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, it talks about lifting up holy hands unto God. And there's certain people in Christianity today that, and, and they go to churches and they think that it's a real spiritual thing to put your hands up and hold your hands up in an act of worship or praise. And let me just say, I don't care if you do. I'm not mad if you do. I don't, I, I, it wouldn't bother me at all if you did that here. What would bother me, oh, is if you did that thinking that you were fulfilling that verse. Now, that's a people who don't know their Bible. That's people who don't know the definitive verses. I'm sorry. They may be nice people. I'm certainly not mad at them. I don't even know them. If I knew them, maybe I wouldn't like them. But sometimes it's better off not to know them because then I can say I like them. But when you lift up these hands in a service, this is not lifting up holy hands unto God. Do you know why? Because you're lifting up your hands of your flesh. And there is nothing holy about these two hands. Amen. Nothing. Nothing. These hands will get you in all kinds of trouble. You light cigarettes with them. You drink can of beer with them. You wave at people who cut you off in front of you with them. And those are the same hands you're holding up. People are ridiculously inept when it comes to the Bible. Now, I know inept's a big $25 word, but I've made it my vow in life not to call people stupid anymore. Inept is just a $25 word for you're stupid. God gave you an eternal soul so that when you got saved, you could have fellowship with God through your soul, if you choose to. 
Now, when you get saved, that Bible says, as I already told you in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that you were sealed under the day of redemption. Can't get out, nothing can get in. And even though you're still in the flesh, God, at the time of salvation, came down, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, I won't get into the details of it, but he separated your flesh from your soul. And as I said, the two will never get back together. Your soul now is completely separate from your flesh and your spirit. You have to see this. Where your body can sin and your spirit can still sin, your soul cannot ever sin again. Now there's a great verse that's a definitive verse on this in 1 John chapter 3 verse 9. Very confusing verse to some of the brethren. But it simply says that whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that's one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible that shows you your soul and the fact that it's absolutely sinless this morning if you are saved. Now pastors, Christians, theologians today... Here again, they're so inept when it comes to the use of the scriptures in the Bible. They can't get this truth. They just can't. And if you got any other Bible than a King James Bible, where the Bible says, he that is born of God does not commit sin, they can't get that. Because the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. And they say, well... To say you can't sin is, 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 is a terrible thing. In fact, the Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and there's no truth in us. Yet it says over here that he that is born of God does not commit sin. So what do you do when you're a scholar? What do you do when you're a preacher that's educated beyond your intelligence? What? Yeah, that's exactly what you do. It must be a mistake. Let's change it. <laughs> So they take the word where it says, he that is born of God does not commit sin, and change it to the he that is born of God does not practice sin. That will be in your NIV and every other Bible out there, which is, to me is more inept <laughs> than to commit. I've always thought that the guys who do this stuff must never work with people. If you work with people, you wouldn't say stupid things like that. You know why I never put in there that he that's born of God does not practice sin? We all practice it. And some of you are really good at it. You know why? Because practice makes perfect. I practice sin. You practice sin. Everybody does. To make that verse in there is absolutely ridiculous. You practice sin. Boy, do we ever. You kidding me? Now, the key to understanding this contradiction, so we don't have to change our Bible, is simply the fact, when it says, he that is born of God does not commit sin, he's not talking about your body. He's talking about your soul. You know how I know that? Because Paul said in Romans chapter 7, when you got saved, your flesh didn't get saved. And when I got saved, my soul got born again. My flesh never did. My flesh never will. My flesh and your flesh will be the problems that you and I face all down through the Bible and our lives. Your flesh is not born of God, but your soul is. The verse is not talking about your flesh. It does sin, but your soul is sealed. 
And God's seed, verse 9 of that verse, remains in your soul, not in your flesh, nor in your spirit. Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that when a child of God practices sin, commits sin in his flesh, that that grieves the Holy Spirit of God, and it causes some real problems in your life. It'll be somebody who walks after the flesh, after they're saved. To fulfill the lust thereof, the Bible says. But you do that in your flesh. And when the Bible says in 1 John 3, 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, he's not talking about your flesh. He's talking about your soul, which was born of God. So the soul of man is, a, is the eternal part of man, given by God so that throughout eternity, man, by his free will, can choose to be with God. Right now, it's in time of fellowship. Right now, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you for one purpose. That is the point of contact of fellowship with God if you desire to have it. But you're going to need a glorified body coming down the line when Christ puts the rest of his plan into effect. This one isn't going to cut it anymore. Now, let me talk to you a minute and help you understand the concept of hell and a lake of fire. Maybe this will help you. And I know that we live in a world today that does not believe in hell. I know we live in a world today in Christianity. People who claim to be Christian don't believe in hell and a lake of fire. I don't know if they think it went away or gone or never existed. I, I, it's strange. And the only answer I can give you about people like that today is people who are just really inept. <laughs> this whole country was preached at by the greatest evangelist preachers that ever walked this planet for over 200 years. And every one of them preached a hell, fire, damnation, lake of fire ending for a man who didn't trust Christ. How in the world can you go through 200 years of history of a man preaching about hell? Jesus in the New Testament talked about it at least 14 times and then come out of the bushes today and saying it doesn't exist. It exists. And the fact that you don't believe it doesn't change it. I had two Jehovah Witnesses one time that came to my house and I started witnessing to them and I told them about hell and he said, oh, we don't believe in hell. We're Jehovah Witnesses. I looked back and said, well, I know all kinds of Jehovah Witnesses who believe in hell. And they said, well, where are they at? And I said, they're in hell. They didn't trust Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. <laughs> You want to understand why God has a hell and a lake of fire? It's simple. And maybe this will help you today. You see, since the soul of man is eternal, and a man rejects to have the Holy Spirit of God come into his soul, and if a man rejects God, his soul is sinful. Bible says over there in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20, the soul that sins shall die. So if a man rejects God, his soul is sinful and he must be dealt with in an eternal way. That sin doesn't put itself all out through the universe and contaminate God's plan. And you know and I know that the only way you purge something is by fire. And so God created a place called hell, likened to a furnace, likened to a lake of fire. 
a place where an eternal soul that is sinful because it rejected Christ must eternally be purged by fire because it's spiritual and eternal. It burns for all of eternity, never being consumed because it's not physically, but eternally being purged in a place that keeps it from ever contaminating the universe again. An eternal purging in a place that sin can never get in and mess up God's plan ever again. Now, we've come to the third part of man's trichotomy here, and this will be the spirit of man. Remember now, we're on a search for the heart of man. Genesis chapter 2, 7 says that man for God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So now we got God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There's the spirit of man. The spirit of man comes from God, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21, and it goes back to God when you die. It's like air. It's called the breath of life. In fact, without getting into it today, it's the key of understanding when life begins and when life ends, which is the big controversy. No controversy in the Bible, it's as clear as can be. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 says, God is the father of all spirits. So when God made Adam, he formed his body, his soul, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's his spirit. This is important now because the spirit of man, you need to understand this, much like the flesh, is not saved. The only thing saved about you is your soul. Your flesh is not saved, nor is your spirit saved. Got to understand that. It's not sealed. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 says, and it's a great verse, it says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the sight of God it says the flesh and the spirit are sinful and need to be cleansed says nothing about the soul you know why? your soul was sealed it's perfect it was born of God therefore it cannot sin perfecting holiness in the fear of God in your flesh and in your spirit Now, when we talk about the mind of man and the heart of man, in a physical sense, we're talking about the spirit of man. The seat of all that man is, his human senses, will be his spirit. The spirit of man will be the exact center of everything man is. It's called the will of God sometimes. It's called man's willpower. It's called passion of man or woman sometimes. It's about what he loves or what we hate. When we talk about free will in the Bible, we're talking about man's spirit to make a free will choice based on a man's spirit. The spirit of man is probably the most misunderstood, yet the most vitally important component of your life and my life that needs to be understood today. Now get this. Two aspects of the spirit of man. One is your heart. The other one is your mind. The Bible talks about the spirit of our mind. When we talk about the spirit of man as to his heart attitude, we're talking about his free will to either give his love to God or somebody else or something else. He makes his choices. 
based on his attitude of heart. When we talk about the spirit of man as being his mind, it's talking about a conscious choice of which way we're going to decide we're going to go in life. Free will based on the spirit of man. One will deal with our attitude, our heart about life. One will deal with the direction we choose to go based on our mindset in life. God gave man his human spirit. Man's human spirit. Then at salvation, man now gets the Holy Spirit. And if that man chooses to love God and gives his spirit to the things of God, then Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says at that point, Keep in mind, you got saved. God separated your flesh from your spirit. Now you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. But you have a flesh and you have a spirit that needs to be cleansed. How do you do that? By taking the principles of the Word of God, the promises of the Word of God, and cleansing those two. The Spirit of God then will lend itself to the Spirit of God that's inside you. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, when you do that, that God's Spirit now bears witness with your spirit that you are the sons of God. That's how it works. Not complicated at all. He does this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, by the promises of the Word of God. The principles. This is why I beat into you every time we're together, learning the principles. You cleanse your flesh and your spirit by the promises, the principles that God gave you. And when you have the Holy Spirit of God locked up and sealed inside your soul, that's the place that you can choose to have God fellowship with, but you have to give your spirit to that. He does this by recognizing that he has the principles, the mind of Christ, the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And that by letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, taking your spirit, your mind, and your heart, and putting it into this book to get God's heart and God's mind and your human spirit that lines up with God's spirit. Now see how easy that was? What you allow into your spirit will determine which way you go. The way. I don't know if you know it or not. Man has four openings that will be the conduit to his spirit. A feeder system to the spirit of man. One will be the eyes. What you look at will affect your spirit. You can have the happiest day of your life and driving down the street. And all of a sudden, a dog, cute little dog runs out and a big semi-tractor trailer squirts on him and the blood goes all over your windshield and it ruins your day. Your spirit just goes... Mm. You saw something. That's what you listen to. The greatest example of it in the Bible is, and it's, it's many things, but music. Music affects your spirit. When you go out and listen to the god-awfulest worldly stuff that it sounds like, you know, out of the whatever, and you listen to that stuff, it affects your spirit. What you listen to. You can go out and have the greatest on-fire relationship for God in the morning and going to go do this, and boy, everything is fine, everything is great. Man, I'm on top of my world. And you'll get one phone call. Amen. One phone call from some bitty bag over here that wants to tell you all the filth that she's heard over the weekend and your spirit just goes to the bottom. I'm telling you. Now, in both cases, how do you deal with the one and Miss Diddy bag over here? You follow the principles. 
You follow the principles. Number three and four are your mouth and your nose. What you take into your body. And, uh, you know, and all four of these will affect your spirit, which will in turn affect your way to God or your way away from God. It's your choice. It's what you lend yourself to. One way will perfect you to holiness. The other way will destroy you through the flesh. Bible says sin always starts in the heart. That's this, that's man's spirit. Can't be the soul. Somebody says, well, I think the soul of man is his heart. It can't be. The Bible, is, 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 the Bible says that a man's spirit and a man's heart is wicked. Can't be your soul. Your soul is sinless. The great example of this is Saul and David. Saul's attitude toward David was based on his spirit. When he had the spirit of God, he loved David. When he had an evil spirit from the Lord, he hated David. Wanted to kill him. It's your spirit. This is the center of man. This is the spirit of man is his driving force. It's his drive. It's his ambition. It's his passion. It's his feelings. It's his loves. It's his hates. It's his emotions. It's his will. It's his pride. It's his arrogancy. It's him thinking that he's smarter than God. It's his sinful uh, through the intents of his heart. It's his conscience that he has. Bible says that God wrote the word of God on the tables of your heart. This is why man knows inherently that some things are wrong without ever reading the Bible. And what does man do? He feels those things in his heart, feels those things in his conscience, feels those things in his spirit. And then the Bible says he sears it. It's man putting his spirit up against God's spirit instead of becoming one with it. Saved or lost. Spirit of man is like a rudder of a ship. You control the way you go by which way you allow your spirit to go. If you lend your spirit to the things of the world, that's the way you're going and that's where your heart will be. If you lend that spirit to the things of God, that's where you go, that's where your heart will be. Now this brings us up to our next word. The way of man. Now we understand the body, soul, and spirit with the heart. Now we're going to look at the second word, the way of man. The way of man will simply be based on two things. Your attitude of heart and your mindset toward the things of God. You're going to go God's way or you're going to go your own way. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord devises, uh, uh, devises his way. Your free will is your ability to choose which way you go based on what you allow into your spirit. When it's worldly things, worldly music, worldly smoke, when it's pornography, when it's booze, when it's filthy jokes and filthy talk and filthy people, that's the way you're going to go. How many times I've seen a guy or a gal, nominal Christian, not going to set the world on fire, it would have never happened, but they go to a Christmas party at work someplace, or they go out to uh, someplace there with the guys at work, and they're Christians. And yet they fall into the booze, they fall into the lifestyle. Why? Because you put your spirit with the wrong spirit. Now, I don't suggest you do this. 
Where's where's my street preaching guys at? I don't suggest you do this. You, if anybody could get away with it, you two guys could. You know, if you went into a strip club someplace, they're already taking notes on this. <laughs> if you went into a strip club, I mean a real bona fide strip club. You went into a strip club and you got up there and you started to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved the rest like me. You know that would be like taking two pieces of sandpaper and it just wouldn't fit. You realize that you'd be thrown out of there so fast you wouldn't know what hit you? You would not be welcome? They don't want to hear that in a place of that kind of godlessness? Do you know why that is? Have you ever even figured it out yet? It's because there's two spirits there. One is the spirit of God, the other one is the spirit of the devil. And they won't mix. So you as a child of God taking your spirit that needs to be toward the things of God and even playing with it. Oh, I'll go to the party, I just won't drink. No, till you get the DWI on the way home. No, I just, I'm not, I just, I, I, I know I'm just going to go be with my friend. Yeah, when you lend your spirit to the wrong thing, no, you have to make your own choice about that. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's no negotiating with your flesh. There's no playing with your flesh. There's no saying, I'll give you a little bit, but that's all you get. Uh-uh. And people's lives turn into disasters because of that kind of reasoning. It's just that simple. You'll either give your spirit to the things of the word or you'll give them to the word of God. Godly music. Soul winning. Preaching. The people of God. Fellowship with them. Fellowship with... You never notice... You, you know, and I know you don't get this. I, 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 some of you do, but I, I know... You, you don't have no idea. And I know this sounds absolutely stupid. You have absolutely no idea... How important it is for a place like Jason's Deli after volleyball. Amen. You have no clue. And I, yet I hear it all the time. We've gone back to Jason's Deli again. We've been there every time. I know. I don't like it either. <laughs> they don't like us being there either. They put the dividers up to try to get us to leave. We're staying for sure now. <laughs> but you know why it's important for you to be there? I won't tell you why. Because you walk around and look at that place, you see about 150 people who have the same spirit of loving God, loving that book, and loving each other. Amen. And you can't buy that someplace. Right. But no, no, no. You'll go home or you'll go here or you'll go this place where you'll have no problem going out with your friends that drink, they cuss, they live in immorality, and all the things that are ungodly in this world. And you feel more comfortable there than you do with God's people. There's your problem. The Bible says when you do those things because God has separated your soul from your spirit and your flesh and you choose to put your heart somewhere else and your mind somewhere else, the Bible says that perfect unity of that eternal body that has God's mind, God's heart gets grieved. Another messed up concept, and I'm going to give you definitive passages on this since most of you have it, is the idea of worship in the Bible. We think the idea of worship is a service. We think that worship has to do with music, singing. So churches today have to have a praise band, praise singers. 
You know who the biggest people in churches like that are in the flesh? It's the praise singers. It's the band. Anytime you stand up there and perform with the idea and the attitude, look at me. I'm leading you in worship. Me, in the flesh, as a sinner. I'm going to sing a song that's going to bring... Hey, the best song you could ever sing on the best day of your life, being in fellowship with God to the best of your ability, is a stench in the nostrils of God. You say, well, I pray, I pray for God, repentance and forgiveness every day. Your prayer repentance need repented of. We're a mess. The idea we can build a church on human people and sinful flesh getting up and 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 standing up there and 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 singing, swaying back and forth, or like here we go, eyes closed, like you're in a trance someplace. All that is is look how spiritual I am. If you really wanted to get God the honor and glory, get up there and do it naked. I know that sounds uncouth and terrible, but you know what? You got nothing to hide that way. Right. And I doubt very seriously if when you know, here's the here it is, the morning of the prayer singers. This is the woman. Now what am I gonna wear today? You know, I, I I'm gonna be up in front of everybody. No, that one makes me look fat. That one makes me look fatter. I like this. Honey, do you think that this would look good up there? Oh, honey, that would look wonderful. I think I'll wear this. You know what? Oh, this Sunday, I'm in the, I'm in the praise group in front of everybody. i got to get my hair done. I'm going to get my nails done. I want to look good when I'm up there. Really? Then you have the guys. I don't even know what they do. <laughs> Ain't much most guys can do. I guess you put moose on your hair. Is that what it's called? I don't know. I'm not a hunter. Moose on your hair? Is that what it's called? Moose? Is it called moose? Help me out here. Is it moose? I don't know anything about it. If you want, if moose on your hair don't work, you come and see me. I I trap coyotes. I got some raccoon urine. It'll work really good on you. Master scent. Tell you what. But you know what? That's exactly what our flesh does. And you can't help it. You can't help it. The moment you start picking out your clothes to look good for standing up there presenting God, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Do you ever hear the professional prayers of most Christians? Oh, Lord. Thank you. Oh, God, we're here today to seek your face. Oh, Lord, take us ugly ducklings and turn us into swans. If duck season was in, you'd be dead before you got out of the bushes. You know what I love about you guys when you pray? You just pray. Just pray. I don't know if, if, if John, is, is, is David here this morning... 
he's not here. A couple of years, a couple of years ago, uh, David's a very shy guy, but he's the sweetest kid on the planet. Loves the Lord, good kid. And he started coming to church, and you know, and I, I will, I will, you know, part of the little process is if I see somebody new out there, been coming a while, you know, and just, and just, I'll put you on the spot. I'll have you pray. And most people, you know, they, I mean, you got to start someplace. I mean, what could be next? If you don't like that, the next time I'll stay home and I'll call you to preach and just say, I'm going to be sick that day. <laughs> uh, you know, and you ask people to pray and, they'll, and they feel so terrible about it. They'll get up and they'll say, yeah, Lord, thank, I'm here. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's a great, uh, uh, Lord, I just love you. And, and, and I don't know what Bob's going to say, but it, it, uh, I hope it's good. And just, uh, you know, bless everything. And, uh, Lord, uh, uh, I don't even know what I'm talking to you about here, Lord. But, it, you know, and it, 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 it just amen, Lord, and thanks a lot. And you go out home and you think you did the worst job in the world. You know what? You did the greatest job before God that you could ever do. Now, let me ask you parents something. Let me just ask you something. I'm a plain, simple guy. Let me ask you. You had a little kid, did you? What was the most important part for those kids other than when they started walking? When they started talking to you. Well, my, my grandkids are old. <laughs> 12, 13 years old. They still call Barb Nana. And they come from when they were a kid. Don't you know as a parent, when you got those little kids and they were starting to grow and began to walk on their own and they began to come to you and, and began to say their first words, it wasn't Shakespeare. It was Bible babble if it was anything. But you know what? It was the happiest moment in your life. You called everybody and said, he said his first words today. Don't you know God's the same way? Don't you know when some of you young Christians who love God and you're fine and find your way and, and you get up and pray and you stumble, stumble around, don't you think God as your Heavenly Father looks at that with pride and joy just like you do with your kids? What's the matter with us? That's right. You think God is impressed with the flowers we put on things? No. You think God's impressed with the praise services we have to praise Him? When you don't even know what praise and worship is to find, let me give you the definitive verse on praise and worship in the Bible. It's John chapter 4, verse 24. It's a definitive passage on it now. He says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit. That's man's spirit. That's your spirit. And truth. That's the word of God. Now, you know what I've just done? And I know it's a dastardly thing, and I'm a terrible person for it. But you know what I've just done? I just wiped out 99.99 of the church services this morning. Because if you don't have the Word of God, number one, you can't have real worship. And worship isn't about your singing. It isn't about your music. It isn't about your service. It isn't about you lifting up your holy hands. Worship is about your spirit being yielded to God's spirit through the principles of that book. Worship is a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week event. (laughs) 11 o'clock worship service. Out at 12. From 12 to 2, hell service. Do whatever you want. Now the third word is the word correction. Verse 10 says, Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. And he that hateth reproof shall die. Verse 12 says, A scorner loveth not the one that reprove him. 
neither will he go under the wise. Now let me let me tell you something, and I want you to listen to me, and I really mean this. Correction, reproof, rebuke, and chastisement for a child of God is just as much a part of the Christian life as is the blessings and the goodness and the rewards of God. Change will only come in your life and my life through the process of correction. Through the process of reproof. Through rebuke. Through chastisement. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, All things work together for good that love God, to them that love God. The blessings and oh, how we want the blessings, but how we do not want the... I'm going to tell you something. As a Christian, sitting here this morning, listen to me. Until you learn to take the rebuke and the reproof and the correction of God and enjoy it as much as the blessings and seeing it for what it is in your in, in life, you're going to have some problems in life. And it comes through the church. Ephesians 4 says that he gave some pastors teaching, teachers. What? For the perfecting of the saints. Your perfecting only comes through the correction. I, when I was a young guy and I first felt my call to preach, and I've told you before, I, I, I was trained by the old last of the Philadelphian boys. They were the best of the best. All dead now. But they didn't cut us young guys any slack. If I treated some of you guys the way they treated me, you'd leave this church. But I can say this, if I'm anything in today in my preaching, and I'm not saying I am, but I am saying this, if I am anything, it's because of the way those old boys trained me and treated me. To them, the Bible was everything, and you better be exact with it. I was preaching one time in a youth conference, and there must have been 500 kids there. My first, second, and third time I got to preach. And I was going on about something that I, about a quarter into my sermon, and I was talking about the bums and people who don't do what's right, and I, I, I said, and the Bible says in Genesis, I said, by the, spread of, by the sweat of your brow, you shall earn your bread. And, I, and right that time, this big booming voice. For the 500 people said, book, chapter, verse. It was my father and the Lord. For the 500 people. I said, I'll show him. I went back to Genesis of where I got it, and it said, by the sweat of your face. He stood up in front of 500 people, pointed his finger at me and says, Young man, I gave you an opportunity to preach tonight, and you're a good preacher. But I want to tell you something, and never forget it. If you preach the word of God, you preach it correctly. You're laughing, but that's exactly what you do. Not not all of you. I, I think the majority of men and women in this church have some real guts to them. And we have a relationship enough that you'd probably take that. My problem is, I couldn't do it. I'm, I'm too much of a softy. Those guys didn't care. I don't think I could do it. I love you too much. And I'm not saying they didn't love me. 
But I'm just too much of a softy. I mean, I, 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 but I may think it, but I figure you'll pick it up or I can help you some other way. Those guys didn't think that way. And boy, I'll tell you what, when you screwed up, you heard about it when you did it. And I, you know what? Somebody said, well, he, he, that sounds like just terrible. Maybe it was, and maybe it's everything you've got in fear of your heart. But let me tell you one thing. I never forgot it. And every time I step into that pulpit, I make sure my T's are crossed and my I's are dotted. Amen. So in that sense, it worked. But until you and I learn to take those things and realize that they're just as much as a value in our lives as anything else that we do. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 through 11. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, where all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. You're not a legitimate shout of God. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the, there it is, Father of spirits, and live? For they, your mom and dad, my mom and dad, for they fairly for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he after our profit, that they might be takers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, you yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. A peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, that's what comes through it. Old Mel used to tell the story that his dad worked all the time and he had five brothers and they were something else. All these boys were, when they grew up, not saved, were something else. And he tells the story that his mom was a real, real disciplinarian. And boy, she cracked the whip. And when you do something wrong, and I heard him use this illustration many, many times in preaching. When you do something wrong, you knew you were going to get it. And dad never wanted did it because dad was always out working. Mom did it. And mom did it harder, better, worse than dad ever did. And he said, we had a big old willow tree out back. And we'd sit there, whoever's in trouble on the back porch, and watch mom go down to that tree and cut off a big old whipping branch. About that long. And she'd come back. And she'd say, son, I love you. But I'm not going to let you do these things and grow up the wrong way. Now bend over. And they had respect. And they bent over. And she could crack that thing. Ain't nothing like a willow branch, brother, to get your attention. But Mel said we figured out after a while how to make it not so bad. We'd take a few hits. And then we'd run around mom and we'd grab her. And hold on to her. And she couldn't hit us. And we just hold tighter. And she couldn't hit us. And pretty soon she put the branch down. I got laughing. She got laughing. I said I was sorry. We held each other in our arms. And that's how we made it right. Hey, when God comes to you with a willow branch, he takes a couple of swats at you. Get in close. Get your arms around him. Stay tight with him. And it'll be okay. Amen. Going to bring forth fruit. Peaceable fruit. But you all got to go through it. We all do. We all do. 
Verse 12 says, the scorner doesn't like it. Nor will he go to the ones that can fix his problem. Nor will he like you anymore for trying to correct him or her. Don't you notice that you've all been in that situation when you started to disciple somebody and lesson one went two, lesson two went good, lesson three went good, time you got down the road a little bit. You had some problems, didn't you? You see, I say it all the time. When you start to get into that book, there's some things you've got to change. And here, the guy in Proverbs, he hates and despises any correction that threatens what he is or what his view of the way of life is. I mean, he, Christians. I, I'll tell you, one of the key areas that I observe in people and I watch for is how they take reproof and how they take correction. I think it says volumes about you. I may never say anything. I've dealt with you sometimes and this or that. I, I got to tell you this story. Joe Christian said, my hero. I love Joe. He's not here today, so I'll tell a story on him. Last year sometime, we were doing something. I don't remember what it was, and Joe forgot to do it. It was absolutely no big deal. Nothing. But to Joe, it was a big deal. And Joe called me, and I missed his phone call, and he left me a message. And he says, Bob, he said, I want to apologize. I didn't carry through with the assignment. I just dropped the ball. And he says, I want you to know I'm really sorry about it. And I all want you to know whatever discipline you want to put on me, whatever you responsibilities you want to take away from me, whatever you want to do, if you don't want me to be a deacon anymore, whatever you want to do, I accept it. I take it because that's exactly what I want it to be. I called him back on the phone. I said, are you out of your mind? He said, this is nothing. I said, I, I, I'm not going to shoot the fastest, one of the fastest racehorses I got just because of the fact that you didn't get out the gate in time. But you see, that's the attitude. Somebody who says, you know what? I'll take it, Bob. How you take the rebuke that comes from God, how you take the correction, says everything about you. I've had husbands that their wife came to me and talked about something that they, 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 they did that, that bothered the wives. And they went back and I said, go back and tell your husband. They went back and told him and the husband got mad because they came to me. And that's a natural first out-of-the-gate response. But then about an hour later, two hours later, they came around and simply said, no, you did the right thing. And then they come to me and said, you know what? She did the right thing. I was wrong and I'm going to fix what I need to fix. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. However you take rebuke, correction, in your life says everything about you. Proverbs 27 verse 7 says, The full soul, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. Here's a man that is full of his own ideas, full of his own ways, full of himself, self-willed. Full of his, you know, everything that he does, his way, Christian way, uh, is just not biblical, and he won't change, and he hates the book even though he claims to love it. You know, if you love the Word of God, then you'll accept and change whatever it tells you to do. Isn't it strange how people love to pick and choose out of the Bible what they want to believe? Loving the Word of God isn't just you saying so; it's allowing the book to change you even when you don't want to change. 
And the verse 27, uh, verse 7 of 27 says, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. There's some things in that Bible that are going to be bitter for you and me. But when you love the book, they're sweet. You have to get to the place where even the rebuke, the reproof, and the correction of God is a blessing to you, and you love it too, because you know it's what helps you get closer to God, part of that transformation of you becoming like Him. And when you don't, you become a scorner, verse 12. Your will over God's will. You become a strong-willed Christian. You know, as parents, some of you have the Unfortunate experience to have a strong-willed child. A strong-willed child needs to be dealt with early in life. There's a way to do it. You don't let that strong will get past a certain point. And there's some legitimate things you have to do to break that strong will of that child. And when it comes to Christians, sometimes Christian men and women, when they get saved, they're strong-willed. Where a child may be strong-willed, an adult comes to the place where he's strong-willed. A child just strong-willed because he's strong-willed. But an adult strong-willed because of arrogancy, pride. And that has to be broken very quickly. Some will, some won't. And when they don't, they then they find fault. They'll falsely accuse. Their pride, their arrogancy, their stubbornness takes over. And now suddenly, those who know absolutely nothing about the Bible begin to shed in judgment on those who do. Accuse them. Instead of going to the wise who can help them, they won't. Their pride gets in the way. You know why? Verse 10, correction is grievous to them. You don't love the reproof of God. You despise it. And in time, verse 12, you'll love not the one that reproved you what the verse says. I see it all the time throughout the years. Verse 10 says, Correction is grievous unto them that forsake the way, and he that help reproof shall die. Well, let me ask you something. Let me give you something. You need to know this in case you haven't figured it out yet. I'm not a very complicated person. When it comes to me in my ministry, it, it's just very simple. And I really like it this way. I wouldn't have it any other way. Amen. People either love me or they hate me. There's no middle ground. It's either, man, that's a great church. It's a cult. <laughs> man, he's a great preacher. He's demonic. <clears throat> You'll never hear somebody say, well, you know, I kind of like him. It's either, it's either, wow, that's exactly what I needed, or who does he think he is, God? <laughs> now, I'll tell you why that is, and I wouldn't have it any other way. To me, everything comes down to the book, and it's black and white. Simply, and Bill O'Reilly stole this from me years ago, the spin stops here. You either do it by the book, or you're going to do it your way. In the army, you know, the old timers used to say, and I used to say it a lot of time, there's the right way, there's the wrong way, and then there's the army's way. I never could figure out which one was which. 
But here it's the right way and the wrong way. And then there's God's way. You can go to 99% of the churches and just slide by in your deception. Your fake spirituality. Not here. The heaviness of that book hangs over and permeates this church so much that you can't escape it. And it's not a me, but it's a fail-safe system that just got built into this thing. And the proof of that is just look at the people, the quality that we have here. Everything I do, there has to be, there must be a biblical principle behind it. If it's building a church, there has to be a series of principles that you know what you're doing. I see a lot of guys start a lot of churches, and what happens is, you know, you can go along for four or five years, and just the excitement of starting a new church carries you through. But then there comes a point after five or six, seven years, when all the new things have wore off, and it settles down to the work of the ministry, you better know what you need to do to build a church. It's true of building people. There have to be principles behind who you are and what you get. I just don't get up here and come on Thursday night and show up one-on-one and just say, okay, I have a design behind everything I do based on the principles to accomplish what I feel God wants me to accomplish. I look at every one of you. Well, I get to take the time to know you. Well, I get to take the time to love you, find out who you are, spend time with you, watch you, because I design for you. Specifically, when you come to me, I design for you, specifically, the principles to help you get where I think you want to go. That's my job. The game people play with the Bible will never be allowed to be played out here. Too many of you know the Bible. Too many of you young ladies and you young men, when you start to work with somebody and they start to go at it and then they start to show the signs of verses 10, 11, and 12, you you don't put up with it. You have nowhere to go. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the eyes of the Lord being everywhere and seeing everything. Nowhere to hide. Here it's by the book and everything we try to do and are as humanly close and as possible as we can get it. Every model in the Bible becomes our model. When Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow the way, brother, he wasn't kidding. You know, you can fake a lot of things in life. But if you know what to look for, you can never fake real Bible-based spirituality. My favorite verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, in dealing with people, simply says, If any man love God, the shame is known of him. There's things that identify himself with true love. Always do. And that verse says, If any man love God, the shame is known of him. And it doesn't say this, but the opposite is also true. If any man doesn't love God, the shame is known of him. And along with loving God will be loving the correction, the reproof, the changes about you and me of what is not right. Allowing God to use the church, use the pastor, use older Christians to help get you where you want to go. But some of God's people will just never do that. I've, I've watched parents. Oh, you'll demand your children follow the instructions and correction. You'll correct them. You'll reprove them. When they don't follow what you say, 
But you yourself will not submit yourself to those who have watch care over your soul. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, and they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not grief. This is the, which is unprofitable for you. There's some things that God has for us. Listen, the truth of God will always separate and divide people. It always will. And we'll have to pick and choose. Uh, We'll have to pick and choose what we're going to do in life based on our free will, based on our mindset and our heart. Paul faced it in his day, and every pastor has it in his ministry when it comes to being done biblical. In Galatians chapter 4, you know in Galatians they're really having some issues. Another gospel is set in. Paul is going to them and trying to get them straightened out. And he says something in Galatians 4.16, which I've experienced many, many times. Every pastor has, and I'm sure you have too in verse 16. He's talking to the Galatians, and he says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And the answer to that question, you bet you will. Because correction and grievous is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. And a scorner loveth not the one that reproveth him. Now you got some good stuff today. Some good defining verses. I suggest to you that you get this in your Bible. Get your set of pens, set of charter markers. I've told you before, the best study Bible that you ever have will be your own. It's the one that you do. I, I, I like to look at people's Bibles. We'll be sitting around someplace and you'll be walking off and your Bible will be there. I'll just take it and flip through it and look at it. Not only can you tell a lot about people by how they take rebuke, you can tell a lot about people by what they do with their Bibles. I remember years ago, I was at a church and I was preaching and there was a dear old saint of God. She probably was in her 80s or 80, 85. She was, she was up there. She's probably dead by now. It's been like 30 years ago, maybe longer. And we were sitting there and she went up and she had an old ragtag Bible that was there. And, and uh, she went up to do something and I just started looking through her Bible. And she came back and and I said, I was just looking at your Bible. She said, oh, it's okay. Look at your Bible. And I had looked over in one of the passages, and she had notes everywhere. I mean, this woman, she had taken notes all her life in the Bible. And I, 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 I saw these little circles on one passage. In fact, it was on several pages. And I, I wasn't sure what she was trying to illustrate. And I said, I'm always looking for, for ways to improve my own Bible study. I said, I noticed, man, you got great notes. And I said, I wish I could write like you. This is incredible. I said, but these circles here have got me puzzled. And I said, what is, what is, what are they? Do they represent something in the Bible that you reminds you? And she says, she kind of, she kind of looked down. And she says, yeah. She says, let me tell you, Pastor. When I went through tough times in life, I'd always go to my Bible. And sometimes God would break my heart over something and I'd begin to weep. And in several cages, the tears ran down my face and stained the pages of my Bible. She said, I never wanted to forget those days. And I knew the tears would dry. So I put circles around those teardrops that I'd never, 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 never forget where God touched my heart and where my tears touched the pages of that old book. You know... If the judgment seat of Christ, all God would have to really do to find out where you and I are at is just open the Bibles up and see what you put in it. To me, 
greatest single thing you'll ever do with your Bible is join your spirit in God's mind. That you'll read what He's written in there. It'll get into your heart, get into your spirit. You'll lend your spirit to that book, Spirit of God there, and then you take your Bible. That's why we sell the Ward Margin Bible. You take your Bible, read what God has written to you, and then you write back in His book what it means to you and what you got out of it. What that must be to God. I got a sneaking suspicion that when we get up to the Jubilee Seat of Christ and we have to start laying out everything we did, God will just say, just never mind. Gabriel, let me see his Bible. Brand new. And I'm sure you'll hear every excuse in the world. But the bottom line is the best Bible study is your own. And you take your spirit and you match it up to God's spirit and you take your heart and your mind to that spirit and give it to God's heart and God's mind and you begin to let God speak to you through the book and then you write back to Him in that book. People buy Old Schofield, New Schofield, Dinks, a dominated Bible, Riley's Bible, every study Bible on the planet. And all you try to do is go through spiritual life on somebody else's relationship with God. Get your own. Put it in there. Let your heart, your mind, your spirit become with His. Fill that Bible up with the things that He showed you that when you stand before Him, brother, you hold that book up and you said, Lord, I don't have to open one thing out of my mouth. My Bible will say it all of what you meant to me. Here it is. You gave it to me. It touched and changed my life. Don't ask me any questions. Just read page by page every note I put in there of how that book and you changed me. You wrote a book to me. I wrote one back to you. Every head bowed and every eye closed.